Um, today in chapter 40 and 41, Jeremiah continues his description of the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we'll, we'll start in chapter 40 with again a story of how um, Jeremiah is, is rescued, um, delivered from potential captivity. We'll hear an amazing summary of Jeremiah's message from the foreign Babylonian captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan. And then we'll see how a promising start for life for the poor people who remained in Judah is thwarted by the same kinds of political machinations and deceptive intrigues and, and murder that led to Jerusalem's fall in the first place. So now, hear now the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 40. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he took him bound in the chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey this, his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now, behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakon, son of Shaphan, who the king, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakon, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah and Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tahumath, the sons of Ephi, the Netophathite, Jezniah, the son of Maacathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Hiakim, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakon, son of Shapham, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now Johanan, the son of Kariah, 
And all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Balis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Please let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life so all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, son of Shaphim, with the sword, and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. When they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down, along with Gedaliah, was the large cistern that King Asa had made for the defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the, king of the, guard, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Gruth Chimhem, 
near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we speak of it together this morning. So last week in chapter 39, we saw how Nebuchadnezzar had given instructions to the Babylonian captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, to protect Jeremiah, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. What do you notice about Nebuzaradan's dealings with Jeremiah at the beginning of chapter 40? So he's got, we saw the instructions he was given by Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 39. Chapter 40, we see how Nebuzaradan is continuing to faithfully carry out those instructions of the king of Babylon. What, what stands out to you about his actions? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, and as we think of how, look at how this chapter starts. Notice how it starts. Thus the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Where, where's the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah? Where, where do we see God speaking to Jeremiah in this chapter? Through, <laughs> we see this, this Babylonian guard say the words of Jeremiah, the, that God had said to Jeremiah, say back to them. So as we think of that phrase at the beginning, there are a couple ways we can understand it. Some people say it's just like a transition, like this is signaling a new section through this formulaic, you know, thus the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Um, other people say it's in anticipation of what we're going to see in chapter 42, where we see a prophecy come to Jeremiah, clear word of the Lord. Um, but in a more immediate context, it's coming to Jeremiah through the mouth um, of this Babylonian captain of the guard. And as Mike said, he's, he's, he's using God's name. He, that, you know, when, when our Bible is saying Lord, and the Lord is in all caps, the Lord your God has pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done it as he said, because you sinned against the Lord, and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. So like three times he uses God's covenant name. And in an amazing summary, captures the heart of Jeremiah's message all along. And it's confirming, like we, last week we talked about how, you know, um, Jeremiah presented the fall of Jerusalem matter-of-factly, like he gave us the sad facts, but he didn't stop and give us any theological reflection or commentary upon it. Now we're getting the theological reflection, the theological commentary on it, and it's coming from a Babylonian. Um, you know, and it's uh, this amazing way that um, God is, has made even the Babylonians aware of his specific word, his specific name, to the extent that this Babylonian um, can can say Jeremiah's words back to him. Yeah, Dave. So, yeah, uh, there is a, a record of 
yeah, you would think, like, you know, you're God, and, but he's, he's being very specific. Like, he's not just saying, you're God, generic. You've got your God, we've got our God. Our gods are more powerful than your gods, uh, which is why we won. Like, yeah, he's not giving any Babylonian commentary or spin upon it. It is a, a very faithful presentation of God's words back to Jeremiah. And notice how faithfully he, he's carrying out Nebuchadnezzar's command to him. Um, like, if you notice chapter 39, we see Nebuzaradan um, finding Jeremiah in the courtyard of the guard where we had left him in captive. And here, he's finding him in Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem, in chains uh, amongst the captives who are about to be taken off. So if you think about this, um, like any time, like we, we talked some about this last week, sieges produce confusion. Um, sieges throw everything in disruption. So the way most people put these, the two, like, all right, how do we uh, reconcile finding them in the court of the guard, finding them in fetters in Rama? Well, he had found him in the court of the guard, released him, and then he gets swept up, again, in the confusion of, of um, after the siege, among the other, hey, you, you, you can't be walking around free. <laughs> and so he rescues them twice. Um, he's so faithfully carrying out the instructions that Nebuchadnezzar had got, given him, you know, take care of them, make sure everything's well, do what he says. Um, and then he shows up and we here, once again, rescues Jeremiah from captivity and literally like presents him with choices. Like, you can come with me, come with me, I'll give you everything you want in Babylon, you will be my valued guest, I'll do whatever you want, or if it's right to you, stay here, choose from any place among the land. Um, and then he kind of like pushes them, but go stay with Gedaliah, you know, go to Mizpah, go to his house. Like, but he, he leaves it with Jeremiah. What do you want to do? Like, well, you know, you want to go with us and be treated well? Do you want to stay here in the land and be among the poor people and like them? Choose the lands on which you're going to um, farm and take care of or go live with Gedaliah, this newly appointed governor. Um, so he, it, it, yeah, it, it, to today's point, it's really amazing that he's not putting any Babylonian spin on the message he's heard from Jeremiah, nor is he, he he's um, uh, like trying to um, uh, deny the power of what Jeremiah represents or who Jeremiah represents, but he's treating him exactly the way Nebuchadnezzar had told him to treat him and even maybe going ab above and beyond. <laughs> Others, yeah. Yeah, the, the irony is enormous here that uh, Jeremiah's fellow Judeans like have sought his life, thrown him in a cistern, put him in stocks, beat him, and he is the first time we see him being really treated truly well. It's at the hands of Babylonians. The other irony that like this story is part of a longer block uh, of 
of Jeremiah, like it's part of a story of a bigger story that we're going to see. This story is going to end with Jeremiah taken captive to Egypt by his fellow Judeans. <laughs> like again, like so your irony fits within this larger irony. The Babylonians do not take Jeremiah captive. His fellow Judeans take him captive and drive him to a foreign land where he doesn't want to go. <laughs> um, so the Babylonians don't drag him from his land to a place where he doesn't want to go. They say, stay, uh, you know, live, um, live well. Um, but his fellow uh, Judeans are the ones who are going to, the one who are like, no, you, you can't stay. You have to go with us. We're taking you with us to Egypt, whether you want to go or not. Um, so the, the irony that is running throughout this of how these pagan Babylonians are responding to God's prophet versus the people of God and how they are responding to God's prophet. And it's, it's very, it's, the treatment is the exact opposite of what we should hope for and expect. Other things that strike you about how um, Nebuzaradan, I will eventually learn to say that <laughs> easily and freely. Um, not today, maybe, but one day. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the implied, like, and again, like, throughout, notice once we get past the story of Nebuzaradan, that was pretty good, uh, um, and Jeremiah, the name of God does not append, is not mentioned in the rest of chapter 40, nor in chapter 41. Like, God's word disappears after it's spoken um, from Nebuzaradan. Um, so if the intention is for the people to, to hear this confirmation, look, God said, because of all your sin, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a smoldering heap of ruins that is uninhabitable. Why is Gedaliah setting up his new capital in Mizpah? Because Jerusalem is, is uninhabitable at this point, as you know, Jeremiah goes into great description of, of you know, weeping over the state of the city in Lamentations, that it, it's, it's not a place fit for man or beast. Um, so they have this, like we saw last week, or talked some about last week, this visible smoking sign <laughs> that God's word's true. Um, and it's so visible that even this Babylonian recognizes it and I think the story of these two chapters and, and the chapters that, that follow is that they still don't get it because they're still refusing to follow God's clear instruction 
through Jeremiah, the instruction that God gave Jeremiah still holds. Submit to the Babylonians and it will go well with you. And what do we see in this chapter as it unfolds? Um, this, you know, the stubborn refusal to submit to, to God's word and resort to the same kinds of plots and schemes and looking to outside powers. You know, we've got the king of Ammon is sticking his finger and stirring the pot. Egypt is still like looming there as oh, you know, we can go the Egyptians and they'll help us and protect us from the Babylonians. Nobody has the word of, of God on their lips in these chapters, again, except Nebuzaradan. Um, and and it, I, I think you're right. The, the message is, <laughs> look, even these foreigners get it. <laughs> even these Babylonians understand how clear a message I gave you and how I have brought by my power that message about. That it's God, like, like Nebuzaradan, back to Dave's point, he's not even claiming the, it's Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem. Your God destroyed the city. It's you know, like he did it. Um, and he did it because of your sin, your disobedience. So yeah, it, it's... And there, there are multiple, there's another, we're not going to turn there right now just because of time, but um, you get the word of God coming um, from non-believers or foreigners. Uh, another example is this, the word of the Lord is presented by Pharaoh Necho in Second Chronicles chapter 35. Like, so this is not the only time that, that this happens. But I think it speaks to the, the depths of the spiritual blindness that's present in this land. That even, you know, God has said this will come to pass. It has come to pass. And after it's come to pass, they're still not believing it to be true. <laughs> like, they're still, like, trying, oh, well, we can solve this some other way. Um, or we can figure this out without turning to God, um, without making inquiry of God, without listening to God. As the next chapter, they do inquire of Jeremiah in the next chapter. Jeremiah gives them a clear response, don't go to Egypt. They ignore him <laughs> and drag him into Egypt with them. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, what these chapters are, are presenting to us um, that this remnant that's left in Judah, their hearts have not been, been changed. They, they're still dealing with the same stubborn refusal to obey God's word as, as had been present before the fall of Jerusalem. And even hearing the word of God presented to them through the mouth of Nebuzaradan um, isn't enough to, to shake them out of their um, spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. It's sad. Like, I mean, uh, especially sad uh, the way the story sets up after this, like, uh, which is what I want to turn to now. So, so we have Gedaliah, um, the son of Ahiakim, son of Shapham, and one of the reasons his, his lineage is emphasized over and over again, like we sort of talked about this a couple of weeks ago with 
uh, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Why is it keep tell, calling us the Ethiopian? There's no, no other Ebed-Melech. It was emphasizing, look, look, here we have, again, another outsider who is more responsive, more faithful to the word of God um, than, than you people. Here, it's, it's calling um, attention to um, uh, Gedaliah's lineage. Um, Gedaliah, uh, his grandfather Shapham, uh, if you turn, or you don't have to turn there, but if you want to look later, 2 Kings chapter 22, we are told that Shapham is uh, the king, King Josiah's secretary, and he's the one when the book of the law is found in the temple, he's the one who brings it and presents it to King Josiah. Uh, Ahikam, we've encountered him earlier in Jeremiah. Remember when Je they were going to kill Jeremiah after his temple sermon? Ahikam uh, was the one that intervened and spoke sense and prevented Jeremiah's life from being taken. So Gedaliah is of this, this noble lineage, uh, a lineage of, of people closely associated with the court, uh, and a lineage, we would say, of, of faithfulness uh, with both Shapham um, and Ahikam. Um, you know, we, we see them being presented um, as faithful followers of, of God. Um, and so we're presented with uh, 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 Gedaliah. So how does Jeremiah describe what, what uh, Gedaliah's uh, short reign here in Judah? Yeah, Dave. He is of the royal line. Uh, so yes, he is a descendant of King David. Yes, we'll get to that, but, but yes, um, when we get to the plot. Um, but before we get to the plot, let's, let's, before we get to Gedaliah's assassination, let's assess what's, what, what's, what's going on before Ishmael um, you know, assassinates Gedaliah. Yeah, right. Yeah, and again, like, in the midst of complete chaos, he's in a super difficult, like, like um, you know, in the aftermath, it's chaos. So whoever's put in charge is facing an enormously difficult task of, like, restoring order. Um, and so he's given an extremely difficult task, and as you say, Ronnie, he is trying to carry out faithfully, and even more, he's trying to carry out faithfully in accordance with the word of God uh, as that word has been presented through Jeremiah. So everything he's saying to them is exactly the same message that we've seen Jeremiah present. Submit to the Babylonians, it will go well with you. Like, you know, they are the instrument of God's punishment, but if we accept that punishment, we will we will receive restoration and blessing. And you we, we see that in this chapter. Mike, you had your hand. 
Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Like, what are the Babylonians, what are their intentions? Like, in turning the land over the poor, they're not doing it for charity. They're, they're trying to create a population in this region that will, will be uh, thankful, be dependent. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> feed them. Yeah, like they'll be dressed vines and all this thing and that they can get exact tribute. But bring stability. Like you don't want to completely empty out the land because then that just leaves it like a vacuum that somebody else is going to step in and fulfill. You want the land populated, you want the land productive. They don't do like the Assyrians. Um, and again, like what's the difference between what the Assyrians did in the Promised Land versus what the um, Babylonians did? The Syrians take people out and put another people in. <laughs> like, so they like, you know, practice replacement, <laughs> um, like an ethnic cleansing. Okay, we're gonna remove this population and put this other population in. Like, um, uh, in class this week, we were talking about um, Cajuns. Uh, Cajuns, Cajun, the word, or the, the um, name Cajun is derivative of the word Acadian. Anybody know where Acadia is? Canada. <laughs> they are people who the British, when they took over what's now Nova Scotia, <laughs> kicked all the French people out. Uh, 13,000 French people got driven out of Nova Scotia and then they stuck all the British people in. So that's more like what the Assyrians do. We can't, uh, you know, and then when the British took over Quebec, they did more what the Babylonians do. Okay. We'll, we'll let you stay, you can govern yourselves to a certain extent, but you have to owe us allegiance. So like, you know, the Assyrian policy replacement, <laughs> um, the Babylonian policy, um, let's, let's create a sense of obligation um, by giving uh, license, giving uh, a certain amount of um, liberty to these people to make them, to, to Scott's point, to make them obedient tax-paying subjects because that's what every empire, every government wants. Obedient, peaceful, tax-paying subjects. <laughs> and so that's what the Babylonians do. This is their, their multiple ways of achieving that end and this is what they're hoping to do. Um, and, and they've put in place uh, Gedaliah, you know, someone who is um, to go back to something Dave mentioned, is not of royal lineage, but someone who is of a powerful Judean family that has been closely associated with rule in, in Judah uh, and therefore are in a position to, to restore things uh, to a degree of, of order. Good. What else strikes you about the description of what Judah's like um, or what's happening in Judah under Gedaliah's rather short uh, tenure in office. Yeah, and uh, it's such a great place that everybody who's fled is coming back. And, and that's why we're given this description of all the places that, that people are coming back from. Um, you know, 
he, you know, all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and who were in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, son of Shapim, as governor over them. Then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So <laughs> to your point, Jay, it is absolutely a place, it's, su it's becoming such a place where people want to be that people are coming back. You know, people who have fled, uh, you know, again, ref every war produces refugee populations, people who, you know, want to get out of the way of war, people who didn't want to get caught in the siege, didn't want to get caught between um, the Judean army and the Babylonian army, have, have left town. Um, you know, army officers, uh, nobil, noble families, daughters, uh, people like Ishmael, notice he's one of the people mentioned in here. Uh, people who come back into the land. And, and we see th this implied blessing of God in the bounty that the land has producing. Even like, all right, so uh, we're told that Gedaliah is killed in the seventh month. Uh, we're not given a year. Our, the assumption is it's in the same year that Jerusalem fell. So to get our timeline, in the fourth month, the walls of the city are breached. In the fifth month, Nebuzaradan comes back and levels it, <laughs> burns the temple, carries off everything. Um, in the seventh month, Gedaliah is killed. So in two months' time, like if we're going to take that timeline, in two to three months, um, he has restored a degree of order, a degree of prosperity to the extent that other people want to come live in this place. Um, now, it could be seventh month of another year, like, but, um, but so it's at a minimum two to three months. Um, it's a place where people want to live. Um, and, and I think that's a sign that, you know, after the catastrophe that fell upon Judah and Jerusalem uh, in chapter 39, we, we see a degree of, of normalcy and life returning and the products of the land um, being restored. Um, uh, so, like, the fall happens in the summer, fall of Jerusalem happens in the summer, and by the autumn, things are getting back to normal, and Judah's being a, has become a place where people want to live and a place where people want to come back to. So, that leads us to <laughs> um, uh, what, what, what brings Gedaliah's term as a governor to an end. So we, we've got this, this moment um, where things are going well, and it, I, I like the way Jay phrased it, it's becoming, again, a place where people want to live, a place where people want to be, and then it all comes very quickly crashing to an end. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's a Mr. Smith who goes to Washington. Like, he's a good guy who's suddenly been thrown into all this <laughs> intrigue. Like, and it's like he's, he's, a, he's able to rule and make wise decisions, ruling his people. What we're presented with, he doesn't seem prepared for the depths of the, the plotting and the scheming around him. Um, and these people coming back, like, clearly Gedaliah wants what's best for the people in the land. And notice the, how often in that section of chapter 40, references made to the poor people. Like, Gedaliah has been set over the poor people. Gedaliah has, has helped bring about this abundance that the poor people are experiencing this degree of, of prosperity and they're tasting the wine and the olives and the fruit of the land. Um, but, but then you have all these, these leaders come back who are still scheming, um, who are still plotting, who still hate the Babylonians. Um, and so aren't very receptive to, to Gedaliah, um, who he is. Um, we could say, like, from their perspective, Get, Gedaliah is a collaborator. He's a pro-Babylonian. Um, he's a Babylonian puppet. Um, yes, he's Judean, but, you know, he's not for us. Uh, you know, he's, he's tied to the Babylonians. So they can kind of look at him from a uh, position as a collaborator. Nor do they like his, his message. And, and what's his, his message? He makes this pledge to them. Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. As for me, I dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who, come, who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you've taken. So, like, he, he's, he's putting himself, like, uh, again, like in this mediator position. Look, I'm here, yes, I'm been put in place by the Babylonians, serve them, it'll go well for you. But know also that I'm going to turn around and I'm going to, you know, speak to the king of Babylon for your interest. And when they come here, they'll deal with me. They're not going to come hassle you. They're going to come speak to me, and I will be there in this mediating position between you, the people, and the Babylonians. Do this, and it will go well for you. Um, and that, again, that message there, serve the Babylonians, is the same message as Jeremiah. And just as we've seen, people didn't like it when Jeremiah said it. They don't like it when Gedaliah says it either. I don't think he's, I wouldn't say empty-headed. I think that's too harsh. And I think people tend to judge Gedaliah a little harshly in, in that respect. Um, maybe a little naive and too trusting, yes, I, I would say that. Like, he's warned, and he, he doesn't heed the warning. But I think he doesn't, like, if we, we think when, um, when Johanan comes to him and, and says, uh, like, they warn him, like, he, he doesn't mean well for you. And, and get a 
Goliath like doesn't want to believe it. Like he's like, no, he's the like because he's assuming everybody else is like him, who has the best interest for the people at heart. And what we see is these people don't, <laughs> these other leaders, they're not thinking about the people, they're thinking about themselves. Um, and, and how often do we see this? Like, uh, I mean, politicians all the time. Like, they make choices based on what's going to do the best for them. Like, ensure their power. It might, you know, be ruinous to the people they're governing, but if it helps ensure their power, their place, then, then they do it. Like, so I think, again, like, Gedaliah is, is one of the, he's focused on the interest of the people, and his assumption is everybody wants to, to, to work together to make this a place where people want to live. And so, again, he's kind of unprepared for the degree of, of plotting around him, and he's not willing to, to listen to these accusations being made against Ishmael, nor is he, like, what he's really not willing to do, and again, I think this is to his credit, he's not willing to participate in politics as usual, which is assassinate your rival. Um, and that's what, like, if you think of what Johanan comes to him, he comes to him secretly and says, let me go, I'll take out Ishmael, nobody will know it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to have any part of this. And um, it, it's always the way, like, God's providence, like, I, can, I could never plan these things. I really couldn't. Like, so in our Bible study on Friday night, we studied Deuteronomy chapter 19, which talks about, you know, um, the need to have multiple witnesses. Um, and, you know, the, the um, not responding to a false accusation. And notice the phrase that he uses there. You're bearing false witness. When he comes to him secretly, he comes to him by himself. Like, you're bearing false witness against Ishmael. Um, he's not willing to believe it, um, you know, just on the testimony of that one person. Now the other, like earlier it says them, so clearly he heard it from multiple sources that this plot exists. Um, but, you know, he's not willing to participate in politics as, as usual. And politics as usual is kill your rival. <laughs> um, Absolutely, I'm glad you said that, Scott, because that connects to back what Dave said earlier. Ishmael is a descendant of David. David, who did not seize the throne by force and violence. God said, you're going to be king, and David waited. Uh, he had lots of opportunity to take Saul's life himself, and he said, I will not touch the head of God's anointed. Like, I am not going to be come to the throne by plotting and assassination and bloodshed. Um, that is not how my rule is established. Ishmael, let's plot. <laughs> uh, let's kill people. And uh, I, I, one commentator was like, like trying to understand what Ishmael's doing in chapter 41. is like, I, I just think he was a serial killer. <laughs> like he, he's just somebody who got off on killing people. But um, but clearly, like, as we think about, like, what's Ishmael's motivations, um, part of it goes back to what Dave said. Like, he's a descendant of, of David, so 
He's of the royal household, so is he plotting to take the throne? Notice also he's being stirred up by the Ammonites. So this like outside, uh, and if you look in Ezekiel, Ezekiel kind of indicates that the king of Ammon was also trying to rebel against the Babylonians at this time. So, um, you know, it, it's like Ammon's here. They're seeing Judah being restored to normalcy under Babylonian rule, and they don't want that. Like, no, they, they want Judah to be chaos and disruption and because that will hurt and weaken the Babylonians. So, you know, you got this little international intrigue going on with the king of Ammon putting his finger in the pot, stirring things up, getting the people to rebel. And it, it leads to the, like, you know, the, like so many breaches. Like first, the fundamental breach of hospitality. And that's why it's, it's like as we see the scene of murder, They've come to Gedaliah. Gedaliah has welcomed them to their house and is sharing a meal from them, even after he's heard they're plotting against him. Like he is, he is, he is being a hospitable host, and they're violating the first rule of hospitality, like being ungracious to their host, like and <laughs> killing them after you've eaten with them is like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> being in <laughs> uh, rejecting someone's hospitality on steroids. <laughs> so yeah, so Mizpah, like uh, again, we're because of time. Um, but if you look, Mizpah is Mizpah is a town eight miles north of Jerusalem. It has a very rich political, religious history. It appears in Judges twenty. Verses 1 through 3, 1 Samuel 7, 5 to 14, um, again, 1 Samuel 10 to 17. So it, it's a place with, with deep political and religious significance. Um, and it, it makes sense for, again, Jerusalem, uninhabitable. Okay, where, where are we going to set up the new place to rule? We're going to choose this place that has this deep, historical, spiritual legacy. So I, I think you're right, Cynthia, the Mizpah's being, it's supposed to bring to mind, like this is, it's not just a random town <laughs> that's been chosen to set up. It's a place that has political and religious significance in Israel's history. Um, and, you know, that's where he, he's been set up and established his new rule and that's where all these people are being killed. It's not just Gedaliah, it's the other members of the household. It's the Chaldean, like, kind of uh, security force that's been left there. They're killed. You get these 80 pilgrims who show up from the northern kingdom. So all those three places that are mentioned, um, uh, you know, Shechem, all right, so hold on, Shechem, Shiloh, Samaria, those are all places from the northern kingdom, and these these pilgrims have shown up. Um, they're all the description of them. These are all signs of mourning, shaving the beard, putting on tattered clothes, cutting themselves. That's actually pagan mourning that's forbidden in Deuteronomy. Uh, we don't have time maybe to, to dig into that. But here you've got a, a group of pilgrims who have come from the northern kingdoms who are mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly mourning the destruction of the temple. Um, they're bearing the signs of lamentation. 
And Ishmael deceives them. Oh, you know, he puts on the crocodile tears, weeps, oh, yeah, come on, let's go see Goliath. And they get in and he slaughters them. <laughs> like, fills a cistern with all these corpses. Um, and again, it's, uh, yeah. Like, this is the guy, <laughs> like, is this the guy? Like, if you're, who, who would you want over you if you were one of these poor people in Judah? Uh, Gedaliah, yes, he's been set there by the Babylonians, but he's returned a degree of normalcy and prosperity to the land. Or Ishmael, who's got the royal credentials of the line of David, um, but is a bloodthirsty, deceiving plotter who is a tool of the king of Ammon. Um, like, who, who would you want to live under? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because, again, once we get past the story of, of Jeremiah and Nebuzaradan, Jeremiah disappears. Like, he's not in this narrative. And the word of the Lord disappears. So, um, or at least it's not mentioned, talked about. So, we know Jeremiah is in his household. Um, we know Jeremiah in the next chapter is in the hands of Johanan. Um, so we know he is, like, so there's a lot of debate, oh, like, was he one of the captives that Ishmael dragged from Mizpah and was carrying off to Ammon, and then Johanan comes with his force, rescues those people, and then they start heading to Egypt, like, so, or does he come back to Mizpah and pick Jeremiah up there and then go, like, the, so there's a lot of, like, like, speculation on what's, where's Jeremiah, what's happening to him in this midst, uh, in the midst of these events. Um, but what's notable is his absence, and the absence of Gedaliah making use of the fact that he's got the prophet of the Lord in his house, <laughs> um, living with him. Like, maybe he's in a different wing, I don't know, they don't see each other every day, I, who knows? But he, but we don't see Gedaliah inquiring of him. Um, we don't see anybody inquiring of God until the next chapter. And once again, we see them inquire of God and then do something the complete opposite <laughs> of what God's told them. Um, so, like it's what makes this chat like it's it's presenting um, this picture of this remnant that's left in the land. And it, you know, the beginnings of things going to well felt for them, and it's all turned topsy-turvy by, again, people trusting in political machinations. How do we get what we want, and how do we arrange things to maneuver events? And we don't, the concern isn't how do we be faithful to God? What is God saying? And, and, and how should we perform it? 
So as you think kind of long-term what this segment is doing, this is why Jeremiah says the future lies with the people that got taken into captivity to Babylon. That's where God's future restoration lies with those people, not these people in the land who are still trusting in their own ability or in like human strength. Like they're looking like, you know, when God counsels, don't look to, to, to chariots and horses. Don't look to the strength of man. Don't go looking to Egypt. <laughs> That's what we still see people doing. Like Ishmael's looking to, to, to the, this foreign kingdom of Ammon to help him. Uh, Johanan isn't any better. Um, he's participating in secret plots. Oh, let me go assassinate Ishmael. Um, out of fear of what Babylon might do, you know, he flees to Egypt and drags a bunch of people with him. Um, and so this, you know, remnant ends up being exiled anyway. But they're being exiled by their own people, <laughs> and they're going to uh, to Egypt, which, um, uh, you know, oh, how many times are we told in the Old Testament, don't go back there. <laughs> Like, don't, there's nothing there for you. <laughs> don't go back there. And, and that's like in their dealing with kind of real life, rather than exercising trust in the Lord, they're how can we solve things ourselves? And that, again, like trying to think of, all right, what's our takeaway? That is my big kind of application for myself and for you. Like how often is our first response to things, all right, who can I conspire with? <laughs> uh, you know, how can politics solve this? Um, I was actually thinking, uh, like, as I was preparing for this this week, I saw a statistic. Um, the number of abortions over the post, in the year post um, the removal of Roe v. Wade was exactly the same as the year before the ending of Roe v. Wade. So, like, we, like, and we, uh, like, I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate this Supreme Court decision, but if we're thinking that solved the heart problem in our country, we're nuts. Like, oh, we got to win. The same number of children are still being killed in the womb after that court decision as before. So, like, but that, like, so if we put our hope in those kinds of things, we're, we're doomed to disappointment and failure. Um, we, we have to focus on trusting in God and his power, being obedient to what God says, because often the more we try to solve things out of our own power, out of our own knowledge, without consulting God's word, um, we're making things worse, not better. Um, so that's the kind of, that's at least how, <laughs> as I've been trying, like, what do these stories mean? That's what I've been coming down, like, uh, don't, don't trust in plots. <laughs> uh, you, you just, you end up, like, making things worse um, rather than trust in God. And as to Jay's point, like, we don't see anybody inquiring of God's prophet um, in this story. And it's that absence, that absence is what's leading to all this Things not getting better, but things getting worse for the people of God. 
All right, well, um, next week uh, we'll continue the same story um, as we see these plotters or the plotters against the plotters um, deciding to go to Egypt and, and consulting Jeremiah um, about whether, what they should do. Um, but that's for next week. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess our, our sinful and stubbornness uh, to, to trust in ourselves, uh, to, to think we know better than your word, um, to think that, uh, yeah, I know God would want me to do this, but I'd rather do something else is, is so often um, the, the response uh, of our hearts to situations. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, in, in the words of the song, to trust and obey, um, to, to look for your guidance, um, to seek your counsel, um, even when, uh, when we're, we have good rule and good intentions, that if we're neglecting your word, um, we can make um, bad decisions um, and end up uh, um, making things worse rather than better. Uh, so help us to, to not just be a people of good intentions, but to be a people of, of faith, uh, a people of obedience, um, people who, uh, just, who don't just want well, um, but people who seek to do well uh, through doing the things that you've commanded us to do. Help us to be faithful followers of, of your commands, um, and most of all, faithful followers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, to uh, be wholeheartedly devoted to him, to, to put our trust in him, um, to fear our God rather than to fear men, um, which once again, uh, we see a chapter ending where fear of man is at, uh, uh, at the forefront. Help us to fear you, and part of that fear is, is reverence for you, and help us to express that reverence as we gather to worship in the coming hour. We lift this all up in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So vows and prayer. No, that's not mine. It was up there. So, um, Yeah, so you'll get up. You'll explain baptism. Say something. <laughs> um, uh, I'll do the vows. You do the baptism itself. I pray. And I meant to check. The vows are on the handout for that day. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know Dana did the handout. I meant to, like, check and, if not, print them from the VCO, but, but my memory was...
Okay. Terrific. You're very welcome. My my honor. <laughs> I want to see you do this to you. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you could go back and forth. <laughs> playing along at home.